maybe entertain you with a coughing spasm this morning, so we'll see how it goes. Seen a lot this week, then we walked back in and sat down to eat something in the kitchen. I reached over, my watch fell off, the band broke. Translation is only as good as it follows the original writing, that it's faithful to the original language. That's why the Jehovah's Witness Bible, <coughs> the, the New World Translation, is not a Bible because it's not faithful to the original autograph. 
It's not faithful to the original writings of Scripture. When you get into a book, like the Book of Mormon, it was first published in 19, excuse me, 1825. And it's the chief cornerstone of Mormon belief. By 1898, it had undergone 2,038 corrections. Corrections. Between 1825 and 1898. And by 1959, <coughs> it had more than 3,000 changes in grammar and doctrine. So that raises some serious questions. If God is the author, should we expect there to be 3,000 errors in what was written? The Bible is unique. It was written over 1,500 years in three continents by more than 40 different authors. Imagine 40 people from different backgrounds writing on philosophy, on ethics, <coughs> on interpretation of history. You've got some like Moses that were educated in the court of Pharaoh, the best education you could get at the time. You've got Solomon in the luxury of the Israeli palace being educated. <coughs> then you've got some people like Amos, who was a shepherd, a poor shepherd from the South Hills of Bethlehem. You've got Peter, an uneducated fisherman. Luke is a Gentile doctor. And Paul is a, a Jewish zealot educated under Gamaliel, some of the finest minds at the time. Do you think all of them could agree on the same subject if they were left to themselves. The only conclusion is that the scripture is the word of God. That God is the author of scripture. Nothing else makes any sense at all. And of course, scripture claims for itself to be inspired. <coughs> Example number two. Some people draw a sharp distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are those that view God as harsh, of course, in the Old Testament, and um, quite different from the God of the New Testament. They fail to understand the significance <coughs> found in the Old Testament laws and rituals, and they see it as something that has no effect, no bearing on us whatsoever. Harsh in the old, <coughs> loving in the new. They see God ordering the total annihilation of the Canaanites in the Old Testament as they, as they see Jesus saying, love your neighbor in the New Testament. They consistently overlook the fact that Jesus was quoting the book of Leviticus when he says, love your neighbor, which of course is in the Old Testament. On the other hand, you've got conservative Jews 
that it's not the Old Testament, but the obvious formation of the New Testament. The truth is that both Testaments are inspired of God. They're equally inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're both without error. When Paul argues that those <coughs> who devote themselves to teaching and preaching the word of God should receive pay for their teaching and preaching, he defends what he says by these words in 1 Timothy by saying in the next verse, for scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain and the labor <coughs> deserves his wages. The first part of that scripture comes from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, and the second part of that scripture comes from the New Testament. So, <coughs> remember Paul started that verse by saying, for scripture says, and then he combines an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. Both Testaments are inspired in a scripture from God. Too many people, too many Christians neglect the reading of the Old Testament. If we did, we would be spiritually richer and we would know the New Testament better because, <coughs> because it builds on the old. Read the law. First five books of the Bible, the law. And you'll find great emphasis on the holiness of God. Read the prophets. And you'll see how God continually speaks to the people. He encourages them. He corrects them. He predicts future. Read the Psalms. And you'll be comforted and you'll be encouraged. With Jesus <coughs> debating the unbelieving Jews because they denied his deity, he said to them to, for them to search the scriptures because it is those that bear witness of me. If the Jews really read the various parts of the Old Testament, they would have discovered that they pointed to Jesus. If we would read and pay attention to the Old Testament, we would see how all of it is part of redemptive history. We would begin to see how God <coughs> called a people out of paganism and gradually revealed himself to them, we would see how rebellious people are and how faithful God is. How love and obedience to God means freedom and how rebellion to God means slavery. It means slavery to sin that you can't break out of. First Peter 1 Peter 1.18.19 And this gets to what I want to say about being bought with a price. About being set apart to God. And again in 1 Peter 1.18 and 19 it says Knowing that you were ransomed and ransomed means redeemed bought with a price bought back from being a slave 
knowing that you were redeemed from the futile, the empty way of life, inherited from your forefathers, your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. We see a powerful example of redemption in the book of Exodus. Israel had been in Egypt for over 400 years, and most of that time they'd been slaves. They went from 70 people to over 2 million during that period of time. And for the most part, they had forgotten God. They worshipped the gods of Egypt. They participated in the pagan rites of the people all around them. They had bowed down to the idols of Egypt. And even after the exodus, they bowed down to the golden calf. And they said, this is too hard for us. We want to go back to Egypt. Things much easier in Egypt. We had food to eat. We're sick of this manna. Day after day, all we got is manna. Let's go back. We had all this wonderful food in Egypt. They didn't mention the slavery they had in Egypt. They didn't mention the children that were killed by Pharaoh and all the other things that they had. It's impossible to comprehend the absolute sovereignty and grace of God until we see the utter sinfulness of the Israelites and by extension ourselves. Until we recognize how sinful, we can see how sinful they were. We don't quite see it with ourselves. But until we do, we will not understand how gracious and sovereign God is. So on the night before Israel finally left Egypt, the Passover occurred. The last of the ten plagues. It involved death to the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Hebrews 11.28 reads, By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the application of blood so that so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. God's angel brought death that night to all the Egyptian firstborn, but he passed over the firstborn of the Israelites if the blood was applied to the lintel and the doorpost of their house. Just believing God wasn't enough. You had to act on it. You could say, I believe that God is going to do what he said, but if you didn't do what he told you to do, your firstborn died. God's word requires that we not only believe, but we act on it. You know, on the surface, there was no obvious connection between blood and life. There, there was nothing to connect this except the Word of God. It might have seemed foolish. It might seem foolish to us, and it probably seemed foolish to the Israelites. 
consume people of faith or they die. And if they don't, serious consequences happen. The doctrine of sacrificial substitution begins very early in Scripture. In Genesis 3, God killed animals so that he could clothe Adam and Eve. Death was required. It was required because of sin. It took blood to be shed. A substitute remember Isaac a substitute ram was provided so that he didn't die Abraham was getting ready to sacrifice his son and in Exodus 12 God provides a substitute Passover lamb in Israel Isaiah 53. Messiah, the Messiah is presented as the innocent lamb. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is about that is silent before his shearers. So he did not open his mouth. You know, Isaac, Abraham's son, asked the question, Where's the lamb? And Abraham answered the question by saying, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The immediate answer was a lamb caught in a a ram caught in a thicket that Abraham saw and he sacrificed it. That was the immediate answer. But the ultimate answer to the question, where is the lamb? came hundreds and hundreds of years later when John, by John the Baptist, he pointed to Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And because we've been ransomed from sin and from death, the redeemed and the angels in the book of Revelation sing Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and praise. Salvation requires blood to be shed. That's shorthand for death. That's the most important lesson details of the Passover. The lamb has to die. Leviticus spells it out for us. It says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Atonement means covering for sin. In case we still don't get it, the New Testament says without the shedding of blood, there is no (coughs) forgiveness. 
Many people today don't like the idea of salvation by the shedding of blood. I doubt Israel cared a whole lot for it either. You look at how many animals they had to sacrifice day after day after day. In fact, when they went through the desert for three days, grumbling because of the food they didn't have, part of the reason they grumbled was because it was difficult. Day after day, having to kill all of these animals before they could approach God. That wasn't easy. There better be an easier way. Let's make an idol. Bow down to it, because the idol's going to let you do what you want to. And if you kill anything, there'll be a feast afterwards, and everybody will go on their merry way. So I doubt very much <coughs> that Israel liked all the, the blood that had to be shed either. They had to make continual sacrifices in order for, to approach God in the tabernacle. Sacrifices were a constant reminder that their sin required death if they were going to approach God. Because God will not allow sin in his presence. Sin contaminates everything. That's why they had to sprinkle blood on all the furniture in the holy place. Because it was contaminated by the people. Because they were contaminated. Sin contaminates everything. <clears throat> but the sacrifices were only a type. They were waiting, they were an example, waiting for the ultimate sacrifice that was going to come. That's why we read so clearly in the New Testament, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If many people only read the Old Testament <coughs> sparingly, they're not going to read the book of Leviticus at all. A book written about 1,500 years before the birth of Jesus, and here we are 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus, for 3,500 years ago, Leviticus was written. Yet laws that were written 3,500 years ago that are no longer applicable to us, help us to know God and to follow God today. The answer really is yes. Because through the sacrifices that were required, these people enjoyed fellowship with God. He was holy. Leviticus is about the ceremonial law through which sinful people learn about God, about God's holiness. The sacrifices at the heart of Leviticus were the heart of true faith then and it's the heart of true faith now not the sacrifice of blood of bulls and goats but the understanding of the sacrifice of Christ the 
fuck all that because it's quoted or referred to more than 40 times in the New Testament, more than any other book of the Bible. There are many regulations, minute regulations in some cases in the <coughs> 27 chapters of Leviticus. But each of these small details have to do with the holiness of God. Israel's a new nation. And God's laws were designed to teach them, to teach this new nation how to be set apart. A holy people who imitated God's character. The rituals and the offerings detailed in the book of God's design his compassionate design to show people how to find atonement, how to find freedom from sin, how to find a covering for their sin so they can approach God and worship Him. Without atonement, they cannot. They're barred from the presence of God. We know that the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in Christ. But the chief concern of Leviticus, holiness, should be the <coughs> should be the goal of every Christian. The people of Israel who try to approach God in a casual way, in a way that was not permitted by God, will kill their children. There's no second chance. There was only one possible way to come into the presence of God. And there's still only one way to come into the presence of God now. <coughs> Jesus followed every detail of the law. His death was the perfect sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. <coughs> But there's still no casual way to come into the presence of God. It's only through Jesus, and it's through a heart that's alive to Him. The priest in the Old Testament were not to be inventive. They couldn't decide how they were going to come into the presence of God. They couldn't change the rules to suit themselves because it was more convenient to do it a different way. Any change brought about physical death. And today, eternal death comes to everyone approaching God apart from Christ. Much of the book of Leviticus has to do with ritual purity. What the people had to do to cleanse themselves to come before God. And the concept of ritual purity is pretty foreign to us. It's an alien concept. Sacrifices, washings, wearing certain garments. But what they are are external symbols of internal realities. When a, per 
person offered a sacrifice to God through the priest, it was because his heart was in a right place with God. And if it wasn't, the sacrifice meant nothing. It's not that the sacrifice made him right with God. You made the sacrifice because you were in your heart right with God. The sacrifice was to show what was already in your heart. And we see the same thing in baptism today. Baptism doesn't save you, but it does show what's already in your heart. Nothing's changed. God's the same. Sacrifice doesn't mean anything, and baptism doesn't mean anything. Do you remember Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees? <clears throat> they complied with the external requirements of the law without an understanding or without conforming to the internal heart change that was required that really would give meaning to their outward behavior. <clears throat> So Israel made sacrifices not to make them God's people. They were already God's people. They didn't have to sacrifice to prove they were God's people. They had to sacrifice to come close to God, to enjoy his presence. The sacrifices came from hearts already set apart to God. Or they were just empty sacrifices that didn't have any meaning. And they were an affront to God. <clears throat> God sent Samuel the priest to anoint the man who was going to be king of Israel, David. The Lord told him to go to Jesse the Bethlehemite because <clears throat> it's going to be one of Jesse's sons. And Jesse had many sons. God didn't tell him which one it was going to be. And God rejected these sons of Jesse one by one. <clears throat> First Samuel 16, 6 and 7 reads like this. When they entered, the sons of Jesse, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed one is before him. So Samuel saw the first son of Jesse that came in and went, got to be this one. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at the appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. looks at the heart, not at the external. That's the light, <clears throat> why the writer of the 119th Psalm says in the 11th verse, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word changes the heart. And when the hearts change, external behavior changes too. 
the heart's not changed, you'll see it in the way people behave. Romans 10 and 9, <coughs> familiar verse, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You have to believe in your heart or your words are worthless. They're false. God knows the truth because he looks on the heart. In the sixth chapter of Exodus, God's speaking to Moses. <clears throat> and he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will I will relieve you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Again, the word redeemed. Bought. Paid a price like for a slave. Israel belonged to God. They've been bought for. They've been paid for. They're his. In addition, all the firstborn creatures belong to God. This dates back to the, to the Passover, <clears throat> to the Exodus, where the tenth plague killed all the firstborns of the Egyptians. And all the firstborns of the Israelites were spared if they believed God and they put blood on the doorposts. In remembrance of their salvation, the firstborn of the Israelites had to be consecrated to God. Firstborn animals of the Israelites had to be sacrificed. The firstborn male children had to be consecrated to God. Consecrated as far as being in service to God in the tabernacle. Rather than take the firstborn from each child of every tribe, God takes the whole tribe of Levi to be dedicated to him, to serve in the tabernacle. They were redeemed from death and they were set apart for service to God. They were redeemed. They should have died just like the firstborns of, of Egypt. But God redeemed them and he set them apart for service to him in the tabernacle. This practice of redeeming is a kind of foreshadowing picture of the ransom that Christ paid in being the only begotten Son who took our place and became the sacrifice. Today it's not the firstborns, males, that are set apart to God, but all believers. Again, we're purchased not with silver or gold, but we're purchased with the precious blood of Jesus. First Corinthians. 6.20 says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. 
So glorify God in your body. You're not your own. You do not belong to yourself anymore. God takes seriously the fact that believers in Jesus Christ belong to him. The important question is, do we take it seriously? Do you belong to Christ? God takes it seriously, do we? If so, how do, you, how do your actions reflect it? How do your thoughts reflect it? If we do, we're going to make it the main aim of our lives to serve him just like the Levitical priest did. The main aim of their life. They had been set apart to God, bought with a price, redeemed from death to serve God. God took it seriously. If they served God the wrong way, there was no second chance. It was instant death. Do we take it seriously? Lord, the word is, is so full of types and shadows that a casual reading just is just that, Lord. It, it doesn't penetrate. But I thank you for illuminating your word to show us that there's no scripture that doesn't refer to you, that doesn't bring glory to your name, that doesn't show us how you're working and what you intend to do. And so, Lord, here we are. Here we are in the present day. And the question always is, do you know Jesus? And if you do, do you take it seriously? Because it's not a casual thing to God. And it definitely cannot be a casual thing to us. So Lord, I pray that you would draw us close together, that your hearts would, that our hearts would be close to your heart. That we would understand how we've been washed clean. And we would give all the praise and the honor and the thanks to you. In the name of Jesus.